It's all part of the plan. DC Talk right here on Get Into Geek. My name is Mitch. This is episode 15. We're talking all things DC on the big and little screens, as well as reviewing the DC TV as it once was, the Arrowverse, my slow journey on my catch-up. That'll be at the end of this week's podcast, as it is each and every episode. But first, we have to get into the news of the week. Now, this is our first DC episode in a couple of weeks, actually since before the release of The Flash, which we were talking a lot about in the lead-up to the release, and we haven't been back in. We were officially going to review the movie. It hasn't happened. Trying to line up those of us that went along has been a little difficult, and I say those of us that went along, not to make fun of the film, because apparently not too many people did make it out there. The uh, disappointing box office of The Flash, of course, stands now at around about $270 million worldwide after five weeks of release. And that barely covers the production budget and marketing budget of the film, which may even exceed those numbers that are reported online. But that stood at around about the $265 million mark. So even though the box office takings do just edge past that, it's still well short of actually breaking even. So no matter which way you slice and dice this movie, no matter how much you might have loved it or hated it, it wasn't a box office hit, unfortunately. Now, while we didn't actually get to get behind the microphone and review it as a team on the podcast just yet, I'm hoping that'll still happen in the future now that the movie has hit digital. Anyone who saw our socials, uh, we did put our thoughts up. And generally speaking, the three of us that were there on premiere night, Maddie and Brendan and I, liked the movie. Uh, it certainly isn't as bad as the disinterest and the online hate for this movie would suggest it is, that it's some type of abomination. Say what you will about some of the CGI along the way and a few of the choices, especially towards the end of the movies with regards to the cameos. I'm talking as if you guys haven't seen this film. Do I need to do any kind of spoilers? Probably not. If you're listening to this, you probably saw The Flash or have at least looked into it enough. But regardless of all that, I think the film overall and some of the other performances from the supporting cast, I mean, personally, I thought Ezra did a pretty good job playing two roles. Might be a bit of a uh, questionable person in the real world, but in the film, pretty good. Michael Keaton, Sasha Kaye around them in the movie, also pretty great. But in the end, the box office did nothing for this movie, didn't set it alight, and it wasn't so much of a farewell or fanfare to the DCEU quote-unquote, of old, and doesn't really do much to uh, promise anything massive for the future as far as casual fans go. And I think that's where this film did run itself into trouble. And we have spoken about it a lot off-air, and this is nothing new to a lot of your ears. But yeah, this film really had a tough battle along the way. And that was what I shared in my reaction to the film on our social reactions was that this film was competing against the the Snyderverse that it was kind of birthed from as far as Ezra Miller carrying on their performance as The Flash and every other DC character returning from those films. But it was also a little bit lighter and didn't carry on the storyline of the Snyderverse. So it wasn't doing anything for the fans trying to get to the, to the new era of DC films. And it wasn't doing enough to keep the fans of the old DCEU. So it was really fighting an impossible battle even before you bring the whole Ezra Miller controversy into it so if for some reason you haven't seen the movie and you didn't make it out but you're still listening to podcasts about it it is available on digital to rent now and 
Despite the disinterest at the box office, it was topping the charts when it was first released. There is still some interest. It's almost like the movie that everyone was too embarrassed to go and actually see at the cinema, but are now kind of curious to watch at home. Maybe all the hatred, all the hype, anti-hype online was enough to bring in people that were never going to watch it. Who knows? But either way, it is out there. It is able to be watched. And I'm hoping that we will, at some stage, bring in some of the team to review the film and lay down our thoughts. Because there is a lot to say about this movie. So hopefully we will get back in the studio all together and review it very, very soon. Now, speaking of the new continuity that is to come with the DCU under James Gunn and Peter Safran's leadership, James Gunn came out during the week and tried to clear up some of the confusion about when his DCU continuity will officially start. But I think it still leaves some confusion very much alive. Previously, he has stated that the upcoming Blue Beetle will be the first DCU character, but that his Superman legacy, due for release in just under two years, July 2025, will be the first official DCU film. So the Blue Beetle character from the Blue Beetle film that's coming out next month is a DCU character, but his film isn't part of that continuity. I took from that that he meant that the Blue Beetle film was not a DC Studios film. It was not made under his leadership as co-CEO and creative head of the new DC Studios. So the character may survive, and the film might still be part of the continuity, but it isn't made by the people that will be making everything ongoing. So it's not exactly an indication of what the DCU will look like. It's just going to be featured somewhat ongoing. But he's come out recently, more on threads than he is on Twitter, and said DC Studios movies and canon We'll start with Legacy. So it's still yet to be seen whether that further supports my theory that, yes, the movies don't officially start until Superman, which is what he said earlier, that Blue Beetle is not a DC Studios film. Canon doesn't start until Legacy. So the Blue Beetle character will carry over. He said as much that a lot of people will be playing the same roles. We're expecting John Cena to still play Peacemaker. We're still expecting Viola Davis to play Amanda Waller, but no other iterations of those characters. But none of the canon in which those actors playing those characters in the past will be considered canon. So we might be seeing Jolo Maraduena's Blue Beetle back, but the events of the upcoming film won't be part of that official DCU mythology and canon. Okay, that's fine, but a lot of people heading into Flash and even looking ahead to Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom are saying, why should we care about these two big blockbuster films when they aren't going anywhere? Which I've previously said in this podcast is a really stupid way to look at things because each story, each movie is its own piece of art, for lack of a better word, and should be looked at as such. And yes, if it's part of an ongoing continuity or franchise, then great, but it is its own film. Blue Beetle, though, is an unknown character, far more unknown than The Flash and Aquaman. And to release a trailer over the last couple of weeks, which I think looks a little bit more like a direct-to-video release from the mid-2000s type superhero film, if I'm to be honest, I want it to be better than that, and I am excited to go and watch it, but it's not screaming at me that it's going to be this amazing superhero film, but that just might be because I'm unfamiliar with the character, and if I didn't know about the character, maybe what I was seeing would be very exciting and enticing to me. But we might see Sholo Maraduena back, but this movie seemingly is not going to have any lasting impact on the DCU.
Now, speaking of Aquaman, while that film may not carry into the DCU as far as continuity, even though Jason Momoa might stick around as Aquaman, the film itself is at risk of being moved along. Now, we're already supposed to see this film in December of 2023, just a couple of months away. Pushed back nearly a year from when we were initially supposed to see it, and now there are talks that we may have it pushed back even further to early 2024 at best, maybe March next year, because of the ongoing strikes and how that will impact the amount of content that all these studios have to release over the next couple of years, they're going to need to start borrowing from their own release schedule and start sprinkling those projects out over a greater amount of time. So while Aquaman is set for release in December, they might need to push it until March just so that they've got something coming out and they're making money for a little bit longer without actually pumping out anything fresh or putting anything into production because none of that is happening with the writer and SAG strikes. Now, that's certainly not helping with the ongoing confusion for the casual fan and what it means about the shared or new continuity within these DC characters and universes because now the DCEU that Aquaman 2 is very much part of will not end now until 2024. When it was going to be released and going to end in 2023 in December, we were going to have 18 months until the release of Superman Legacy, the official start of canon movies in the DCU. Sure, we might get Creature Commandos and maybe something else along the way on the TV screens, but that might have been enough to separate audiences' expectations and confusion if we had a clean 18 months. Now, we're looking at barely 16 months, more like 15 months between the release of Aquaman 2 and a new Superman, is that going to be enough for the casual viewer to watch it and understand what's going on? The recently revealed cameos that have been cut might actually help with that because initially we were supposed to have a Ben Affleck cameo in there and Michael Keaton was supposed to maybe show up as well or he was going to be at the end of The Flash, which, spoiler alert, didn't happen as well. So all these cameos that are being cut that are pissing off the hardcore fans of the Snyderverse, but it is less confusing for ongoing audiences and continuity if you do take out a Ben Affleck Batman and not promise that he's going to be coming back even more. Sure, The Flash might have done that but they were releasing the flash and i guess had to release it as it was and ben affleck's role in that film minutes wise was certainly limited but i guess provided an important enough position and role in that film that he needed to stay in there whereas in aquaman i guess it was more of a gimmick more of a a classic sort of cameo that they could allow him to be cut it's not going to impact the overall film and it's not going to promise much for the future One last little tidbit of information that came out during the week was to do with Blue Beetle and its director, Angel Manuel Soto, who revealed that his initial dealings with Warner Brothers was actually pitching a Bane origin film. Yes, Bane, Batman, villain, Bane origin film. And instead, clearly loving his passion for the character and his desire to do something in the DC world, Warner Brothers said, we would like to keep you, maybe shelve that idea for a little while, but bring you on to this film that we've had an idea for for a little while. It's called Blue Beetle. What do you think? And clearly things worked out. That's the film that he got behind. No details have been shared about what that Bane origin film would have been like. So hopefully, maybe during the promotion of Blue Beetle in a couple of weeks' time, we're actually going to hear some details about that Bane film. It might never happen, but I think it might be fun to see what he had in mind. And maybe like Andy Muschietti off the back of The Flash, who was signed on to direct Batman the Brave and the Bold, Soto could find himself again being kept by DC, not to direct anything Blue Beetle related, but be kept in the DCU family and direct another project for them in the future. 
That's it for the DC News of the Week. We're now going to get back into my journey through the Arrowverse. And we're picking up with four shows this week covering off Supergirl, The Flash, Legends of Tomorrow is back. But the first one, as it went to air, was Batwoman Season 2, Episode 12, Initiate Self-Destruct. Ryan is faced with a difficult decision that could expose her as Batwoman. Black Mask's plans for Kate Kane begin to unfold. Alice is reunited with someone from her past. And Sophie must decide where her loyalty lies. Less of a synopsis, more of a list of things. But yeah, finally, Black Mask is unmasked to the audience, which isn't really a surprise there, right? As it was no real secret to the audience, right? But I definitely didn't think it would come in the form of bringing Kate Kane back into the story. We know she's going to come back into it at some point. There is some unfinished business there, but I didn't think those two reveals would happen at the same time. Still, while I have to put aside the whole keeping Kate in, even though they've made it clear recasting was not the answer to Ruby Rose's departure... The whole getting around to having to hide Ruby Rose's face with a combination of burn marks and a false face to put on fix only goes so far when the show also states... While psychologically and behaviorally she is your daughter, there was nothing I could do about her voice. Her larynx was damaged by your man during the kidnapping and subsequent torture. Obviously, now you've got to think that's going to play some role in Team Bat, finding out who Kate or Black Mask's daughter really is, but why even cause yourself trouble like that? Surely you can get away with doing the same thing, just less complicated, right? Following that, I actually did get into the chaotic choice of having Batwoman and Alice team up. Now, obviously, it made less sense for Ryan to go along with it, but hey, if the boot fits... I don't know, wear it once? And as was the more interesting choice from the options I laid out last episode, Sophie holds on to the knowledge of Ryan being Batwoman for, I don't know, the right time? The question now is, how long will she keep the secret and will it be long enough for Kate's presence to become known to the wider team? Are those two things going to overlap? Why the hell not? And Why the Hell Not is a wonderful way to talk about this next show, which finally makes its return. (sighs) Legends of Tomorrow, Episode 1 of Season 6, Ground Control to Sarah Lance. Now, the synopsis reads, The legends discover that Sarah is missing. Ava sends Rory and Barad to follow a lead on who can possibly help them find Sarah. While Constantine tries to work his magic, Sarah does all she can to try to escape from her captors. But this show really just does what it wants, doesn't it? I actually really don't respect enough just how much it does not give a shit about the rest of of the Arrowverse universe, or even its own history when you really think about it. Look, to be fair, in the weeks since our last episode, I've actually forgotten a lot about what happens here, but when the show's most annoying character, and I've long said this, and maybe I just don't get him. Gary? He just out and reveals himself to be an alien, and I don't know, has been the whole time. I was honestly just like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. 
What? Like, I shouldn't have that reaction to that. But this show, like, anything goes. Now, I did like the design of that alien species, though, even if we only saw the extent of it once. Beyond the stunt guy walking around in a rubber suit, I'm talking about the leader of the two aliens eating the Spartacus cameo with the the whole chest opening up and him just sort of inhaling an entire body. That, That was cool. And I feel for Constantine, I love having him around. Matt Ryan is a great performer. John Constantine is a great character, and I really enjoyed his own show and the early times that he featured in the wider Arrowverse. But it's like they just don't know what to do with him anymore. And and now his power set is basically anything outside the norm. Sarah's been abducted by aliens. She could be anywhere in space. John, say some old scripture around a chalk mark on the ground and get us the answer. Now, I don't want to lose him from the show either, but he's so far from what he was introduced as, it's barely him anymore. Now, look, I've made no secret that Legends is my least favorite, to put it lightly, of the Arrowverse shows. Now, to be fair, I haven't seen the extended, extended universe shows of Stargirl or Black Lightning, but of the main semi-connected shows that we've had for many, many seasons, Legends has been my... uh, The one that I've been least invested in, let's put it that way. So it was just as much of a surprise to me as what I would have expected it when I saw that this is the first episode of two remaining seasons rather than one. But it's been a while since I've actually seen this show beyond this episode. I think a lot of the negativity has left me. Let's see what episode two can do next week. Right now, though, Flash finally back with episode eight of season seven. It's the people v. Killer Frost. With Frost facing an unjust punishment for her crimes, Caitlin goes to great lengths to save her sister. Barry's efforts to protect Speed Force Nora leads to a shocking discovery. We'll get to that in just a second. But my question heading into this episode was the same I posed a few podcasts ago during our chat around the last Flash episode, which was whether or not the trial of Killer Frost that we knew was coming would be better than Supergirl's trial of Lex Luthor. And in the end, it's a pretty simple answer. Yes. Like, the idea of a cure for metas or mutants was done better in, say, X-Men 3, to give you a very obvious reference point. But while this episode became about Detective, or whatever position she holds, Kramer, and her wanting to see the cure dished out to a whole ton of metas, it wasn't at the expense of the reason why they, or we, were there. Killer Frost on trial for her past crimes. And in the end, the only way to escape the existential argument over a meta changing who they are was for Frost to instead choose, I mean, hell, suggest life in prison. No doubt we're going to see her out again, just how soon is the question. But at least now it seems like there are actual consequences to actions of these villains, or in this case, past villains. Unlike Luther and Supergirl a few weeks back, who in less than an episode was put on trial, was free to walk, and everyone seemingly is on his side thanks to barely a technicality in the way that one witness was questioned. The Speed Force, like the synopsis said, also revealed itself to be a foe of some description, trying to kill the human host of Fuerza. Now, 
I'd like to think this explains the reason for all of the awfully cheesy dialogue that she's been dishing around while in human form. The the whole lightning rod thing. We've now heard two, three, I mean, we heard it twice in this episode. I think it's now three times we've heard that line said this season in The Flash is, it, it's enough to give me goosebumps up the back of my neck. But if it's there as a means of emotionally duping Barry and Iris, we'll allow it. But I'm not fooling myself into thinking that's the only reason it was there. This show has done enough to prove that. And I say foe rather than actual villain, as even after it attacked Fuerza, the Speed Force claimed its actions were for its own good and its entire existence and everyone attached to it. And Barry is, what, going to sacrifice the entire Speed Force itself just to save the life of another dangerous entity? I guess that's what we're supposed to think because we're left on a cliffhanger. Now, Barry's not just going to let someone be murdered in front of him, nor is he going to take a gun and point blank them himself, but we just got his powers back properly after way too long not having them, and we're, what, eight episodes into the show's third final season? The Speed Force ain't going anywhere. Maybe Nora, though. Supergirl Season 6, Episode 6, Flashbacks Reveal Young Kara Experiencing Kryptonite for the First Time. It did. Naya and Brainy are trapped by invading aliens. A young cat, Grant, may be the reason Supergirl never gets out of the Phantom Zone. Once again, that synopsis reading just purely like a list. Going back to last week, though, because this is a two-parter, I couldn't imagine the prom episode that we got being so complex that it needed to be two parts. And Almost to add insult to that joke, this episode basically wraps up the problem from last week inside its first 10 minutes, leaving you wondering what else they were going to do to fill the time. The the show basically then created a problem just to solve itself and give it a reason for existing, rather than tightening up the first episode to wrap it all up in 40 minutes. And all of a sudden, we're faced with a Prisoner of Azkaban type solution where present characters have to travel to their past to fix the future and not encounter their past selves. Okay, cool. I love all this timey-wimey stuff. We were already back in time, but the idea that these characters were going to have to go back to like an hour earlier again just to avoid a problem, that's fun. But then not only did something like Harry Potter do this style and this problem, this little trope so much better, we never really got to see the the fix in this episode happened. We just saw conversations away from the action and then we're left to just trust that everything is corrected through dialogue after the fact. So what was the point? Naya develops a new power, sure, but all of that seemed to be leading up to her having a conversation with her mother alive in this past. It all got teased last week. They threw it out again in this episode, but then that didn't happen. Now, okay, is it just then a good thing to have these two supporting characters be given their own episode, or episodes? Sure, but now the math is really starting to look rough. We are a sniff away from being one-third of the way through this show's final season, and the main character is still separated from the rest, and it's now two straight episodes where she hasn't been there at all. So we're a third of the way through the season, and now a third of what we have seen, the main character isn't even there. But the synopsis for next week's show seems to suggest all of that is coming to an end, and we'll finally, finally, 
bring these two parties back together. Because I don't want to sound negative, guys. Come on, I'm doing this rewatch. This show, let's just have a look. Its premiere date was the 4th of May, 2021. It's been a minute. I'm doing this rewatch because I genuinely want to watch the shows. But... Generally speaking, these four episodes, not a strong week overall. Two of them I, I I liked enough. Batwoman was fine, and I was happy enough with what The Flash did with the trial of Killer Frost. It certainly didn't disappoint or, or even anger like the trial of Lex Luthor did. So it was good to get a bit more of a personal story and, and give Daniel Panabaker something extra to do. And in the end, maybe that's why we're putting Killer Frost, oh my God, I was about to say on ice. But even then, I couldn't apologize for the pun, so I just had to preface it. But they're putting the character, I'm not going to avoid it, on ice for a bit. Maybe because Danielle just wanted a bit of time away. I haven't done the math. I haven't looked in her personal life. I know she had a baby at one point. Maybe she wouldn't work twice as hard playing two different characters. But Batwoman, okay. Flash, good. The other two, come, come on, guys. Supergirl, move things along. We're one-third of the way through your final season. Let's get back to business. Legends. I mean, anyone could say anything to that show and it would act like it doesn't even understand the language you're speaking. It is doing its own thing on its own time. And like I said about the Batwoman storyline this week, I should just be here for the chaos. That'll do us for It's All Part of the Plan this week. We are just a couple of weeks away, like we hinted at earlier, until Blue Beetle actually hits cinemas, which I know a lot of the talk online has been, where is the marketing for this movie? Are they trying to bury it? Are they trying to avoid it? What are they doing with it? Because no one seems to know what is happening. I had figured, why waste all your marketing dollars when Mission Impossible was coming out? That was three weeks ago. Yes, last week we had Barbie and Oppenheimer come out. Also massive, also extremely hyped. You don't want to throw all your marketing money and be absolutely buried by things that basically are self-sustaining in the marketing world. But we're now less than a month out from this movie hitting cinemas and outside of the new trailer, which you only sought out because you knew it was coming anyway, this movie might be good. It might be surprising, but maybe no one's going to go watch it because they don't even know that it's there. And they've never heard of the character before. Basically, I was all against all the negativity around this show's lack of marketing a month ago. But now that we're less than a month until it hits cinemas, I'm getting worried. So anything can happen over the next seven days. But when we're dealing with a strike and none of the actors can do any of their own promotion and we're basically just going to be relying on some online marketing, things need to be pumped up and WB need to start putting some money into this thing. Hopefully some more positive news on next week's episode. So until then, enjoy your DC. We'll catch you next week. Get into geek.